thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. Let's face it, hiring isn't always fun. It can be exhausting, but that's no excuse for not taking the time to make sure to find the right hire. How can you make finding great candidates faster and simpler? With ZipRecruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans millions of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply, so you get qualified candidates fast. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Today's show is also sponsored by GoCD, the software build and release tool from ThoughtWorks. GoCD supports modern infrastructure and helps enterprise businesses get software delivered faster, safer, and more reliably. Download and use GoCD for free at GoCD.org. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the Jack Linda Hamilton doppelganger in the next Terminator movie, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thank you to listener Shifra Goldberg for suggesting that intro, by the way. If you have a suggestion for a silly job title for me, you can tweet it to me or my producer, Eric Johnson. I'm at Kara Swisher, and he's at Hey Hey ESJ. Today, we're going to play an interview that originally aired on The Eater Upsell, which is another excellent show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. The co-host of that show, Dan Janine, is here on the phone from New York. Dan, who did you interview? Hey, Kara. We talked to Jason Drogi, who is the head of Uber Everything, and Uber Everything runs Uber Eats. Ah, so that's the thing most people use. But what is Uber Everything? That's kind of a big title. (laughs) They say Uber Everything is all non-ride programs. So, um, so like they run what? Uber, Uber, all the Uber shipping and delivery as well. Okay. And so but Uber eats at the center of it, correct? And so what did you guys talk about? Well, it's really cool because they are obviously logistics masters. They are computer geniuses. And I was just curious to find out how they were taking all of the data and analysis that they had accumulated about restaurants and trying to apply it in the real world. You know, I was asking him, like, what happens if the... Mexican food that someone orders takes a little bit too long. Are you dinging restaurants? How are you punishing them for their, I don't know, inappropriate times and stuff like that? And they have a lot of competitors now and more and more in the future, especially the big companies. But from your interview with uh, from with their CEO, uh, mm-hmm. you know that they're they're killing it. They're like the golden boy of Uber right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they've had some other problems, so they at least get one little little happy moment for themselves. <laughs> anyway, if you like this interview, where can they find more of Eater Upsell? They can find the Eater Upsell wherever people find Rico Decode, which is all over all of the podcast stores or on iTunes.com slash Eater. Great. Um, I'll be back later in the show to read some ads. But for now, here's Dan Janine interviewing Uber's Jason Drogi on the Eater Upsell podcast. Today on the Upsell, we have Jason Drogi. Jason, you are a serial entrepreneur. Are you still good with that? Yeah. Yeah. You've been involved in a bunch of companies. You started a Napster-like, I'm sorry to say that, it's just shorthand, I guess, Yep. company out of your dorm room. And you worked, you sold some used golf clubs. You started used golf club company. Yep, that's right. Uh, then you worked with Tasers, developing camera technology, wearable cameras. Yep. And then in 2014, you ended up at Uber mm-hmm. running what was called at the time special projects. Yep, that's right. There's a voiceover IP company in the middle there. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, okay, right. well. Same story. Same story. So let's talk about how Uber Eats started. Like the, the story is that you came in to identify areas in the company that you felt like could be the next thing uh, past ride. 
right? Yeah. So at the time, it was the old CEO, Travis Callan. Were you like, hey, Travis, we could do something with, with food? Like people <laughs> people are eating? Like how, what was, how did, what were the first conversations? Yeah, sure. So, so I think from the very beginning, Uber always had a vision that software could um, reduce the friction to live in your city and, you know, you know change the way urban living mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of, you know, like change how you interacted with your urban environment to make it easier to allow you to connect with your city. Um, and the first incarnation of that was ride sharing, which, which completely changed the way that people got around their cities, people connected with friends more in a place like San Francisco where it's super hard to get a taxi, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe a little bit different here in New York. And so part of the vision was, well, what, you know, this movement uh, cannot just be around ride sharing. I mm-hmm. bet there's other things. Right. Um, at the time in 2014, there was no, you know, everyone was trying everything. There was on-demand haircuts, on-demand dry cleaning, on-demand, everyone was doing on-demand flowers, everything, right? Um, including food. And so my job was to come in and just go through like what what's working and what's not working. And I don't think these exercises are as simple as, well, you know, food is a big market and therefore that's where this goes. Because if you look at Uber, Uber started out as a black car business, right? Mm-hmm. So if you just looked at it as a black car business, you wouldn't have seen the whole story. And so a lot of it was just like, let's bring perspective to what maybe our niche ideas that could be big ideas, what are big ideas that people think are big ideas that might actually be small ideas and just put some rigor on it. So that was my job coming in. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, historically I've done a lot of things from the ground up, um, and so I like that stage of business. And uh, fortunately, I was able to come to Uber and be able to do that. Um, so over 2014, my job was to build a small team, look at a bunch of different industries, look at who was doing what, and start running some experiments. And in you know August of 2014, we we launched a few experiments. One was around convenience retail. Mm-hmm. One was around generalized delivery, and one was around uh, on-demand food. Uh, and very quickly, we saw that people wanted their food delivered. I'm actually from Toronto. The first iteration of on-demand food was was in Toronto, right? Yeah. yeah. So there were actually two versions of the product. There was right. a product that was that was hit a button and get a meal, and you'd show up in the actually the. Yeah, it was a bunch of cars driving around with, like, chill boxes or or hot boxes in the trunk. Yeah, exactly. And that was a system in which there was, like, one meal a day. So if you wanted that, they would bring it to you really fast. If you didn't want it, bugger bugger off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't say that to them. But, but yeah, that was the idea. It's like it's fast, but there's low selection. Um, And even with that, we saw a lot of demand at lunchtime. Um, In Toronto, and, and we launched that in L.A. in August of 2014. In December of 2015, we'd gotten a lot of customer feedback. We talked to restaurants. And, you know, about mid-2015, we said, okay, we need a lot more selection. Right. Uh, our customers kept telling us. Um, and that's what we launched in Toronto. That was the very first city oh, okay, for what okay. you now know as Uber Eats. Right. And I think uh, it was reported last year you guys did $6 billion in So in Q1 food? of this year, yeah. we were on a $6 billion run rate, which means okay, if you okay. took first quarter and multiplied it out over four quarters, you would have about sure. $6 billion. So when you first started... Um, and you're like, okay, we're going to do a food thing. You know, a lot of people say that, you know, you guys know delivery, but you might not know kitchens. So, like, how did you immerse yourself in the world of, of kitchens? Like, what did, did you work a line somewhere? Did you take a stage out in Paris or something? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we um, I mean, uh, even before Eats, uh, for some reason, even as a kid, I always wondered why um, there used to be this place in, in, in um, San Jose called Kirk's Steak Burgers. Mm-hmm. And it was my favorite place to get a hamburger as a kid. Um, but it was super hard to get to. And so I always wondered, 
you know, <laughs> you know, from an early age, like, why, why is it so hard to get access to the food that I want when I want it? Wow. Um, and of course, I never knew that that would transpire till today, but it's always been this curiosity of mine about like, why am I so bounded by where can I go? Um, you know, excuse me, like, like where, you know, I'm bounded by my ac- my my logistical access to the restaurants around me. Like, right. why can't I have access to hundreds of restaurants at once rather than just a few that I can walk to? Um, and so I never really knew what the answer was. And I'm like, ah, this is just weak. Like, I want what I want. Right, right. Um, and there are creators out there uh, who are the people creating, you know, food um, uh, that you know, might not have access to real estate teams or logistics or whatever. So. Um, you know, when Eats came along, we said, all right, how do we go super deep with restaurateurs and all of these like amazing people who are making this great food and then allow them to plug into the infrastructure and logistics and customer base that Uber has. Right. And a big part of that, you know, to your point is how do you go really, really deep with a, with a food maker, with a restaurateur to un- really understand their business? Because we, we had to build software to help them out. And, uh, we've done a lot of things you said, right? Like I've worked in a restaurant. You have? Yeah. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll like man the tablet um, or some people will work a line yeah. or we'll pop up a kitchen somewhere uh, just to like see, um, you know, what is, you know, what is that experience? What are the, what are the day-to-day pains um, and joys of doing that sure. type of work? What does that mean? So you've worked in a restaurant that has already had eats up and running. Yes, I have. Right. How, what was that like? Uh, is it your first time working in a restaurant? Well, I worked as a re- I worked at a restaurant when I was a teenager. Okay, you know, like many of us. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you just see the chaos of it, right? Like one of the one of the issues with being in Silicon Valley is 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 you can get a little bit myopic in terms of what the real you know what the world's really like outside of software, and so right. and so going in and seeing like okay, you have a tablet that's ringing. And then you also have a customer that's asking for their food, and you have a line making food for people in the store and for eats. Right. Uh, you know, how do they balance all these things, and how do we build software or do systems integrate? You know, like uh, systems integrations with the software that they already have on site. That like, is like almost, this it, isn't why I became an engineer. Yeah, it's like almost like empathetic to right. like what the problems they have are, and so and so just being there, you feel it. Right. Um, and we try to push everybody to either become a delivery driver or, you know, work a restaurant or in a tablet or, or empathize with the customers that we have to really understand the pains and, um, you know, I guess pleasantries of the work. What was the pop-up restaurant you guys put together? Um, the mo- world's most efficient restaurant? <laughs> no, it, it, it was it was literally, um, uh, you know, we'll make food. We don't actually always sell on eats just for some internal reasons, but we'll make food just to understand making food. And... Um, you know, one, one of them was like a breakfast burrito shop. And so, you know, it was like, you know, sort of like, how do you even, so that exercise was around like, how do you even think about branding a, like a pop-up restaurant? So one of the differences between delivery and maybe opening a restaurant in the, in the physical world mm-hmm. is how you think about branding. When you're in delivery, the branding around the product is a very important piece of it potentially, right? Because like, let's say you sell breakfast burritos, but you're not that well known. If you call your place the breakfast burrito shop, mm-hmm. you're going to get more people clicking on that than if you call it like Al's. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't know what Al's is and what it stands for, right. then, I, then I don't know how to click into it. And so um, it's kind of similar to... The, whereas in the real world... Yeah, whereas in the, you know, Al's is the diner that you go to and they have like five different cuisine types. Right, so in a world where you have access to hundreds of restaurants, um, the cuisine type, the specific food type, um, actually becomes the focal point, along with the brand of the restaurant. 
And so you've got a situation where it's sort of similar to content, actually, in the you know, 90s and 2000s, where you went from only having access to newspapers and magazines that were published into a world where you could get articles and information on anything. Sure. And so if you think about how food goes digital as well, um, you're going to have access to a much longer tail of food, a much longer tail of options in a delivery world because restaurants can create lots of different things that can be represented in the app. Chef Jason, like when you guys, you pop open a, a restaurant, have you opened a burrito place? Like have you, you guys have actually no, no, done no, no. this? No, I just like... Yeah, you know, kind of, kind of like worked and helped out. Right. So, what, what, what goes into these like pop up places? Yeah, just to be clear, this isn't something we do like on a regular basis. Sure, sure. These, and you've actually sold food on the app these, before. Uh, we, we, we have not. We have some internal like reasons why we don't do that because because we're not a restaurant company. But of course. Like, we go through the process of like what would it be like, mm-hmm. and sort of like synthesize all of that um, together in terms of like how we build the app. And so we have to observe. Tell me, you guys have like a full size simulation somewhere with angry customers and everything? <laughs> we we don't have that today, but it's something we might build. Yeah. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, being close to our customers is a very important part of like building software, right? I mean, you're you, like you're in the software business. You're constantly in this world of how do we like connect with the people that are actually doing the work in the physical world? Because mm-hmm. it's a messy place. Like running a restaurant's super hard, right? There's a lot of operational details. And how do we constantly stay in touch with their pain points and not go back to, hey, this is Silicon Valley right. and you know, hey, everything should just be in software and everything should be homogenous? Because that's not the real world. The real right, world right. is not homogenous. So can you talk us through the very basic steps of signing up a restaurant? Do you guys you send people in IRL to walk into a restaurant and say, hey, we can facilitate delivery for you? Yeah. So it uh, happens through a bunch of different ways, but right. you know, I'll just take one, which is if there's a rest, you know, if we're launching a new market, we'll call a restaurant and say, hey, like we're coming to town um, and we think we can supply you with new business. And um, you know, a salesperson will have a conversation with the restaurant about how the program works. The restaurant, if they sign up, gets a tablet. And the tablet rings it's free. Uh, the tablet comes with the like okay. the package, right? Sure. We don't specifically charge for the tablet, um, but restaurants will pay a fee. Um, the fee varies by market uh, per order, and then sometimes there's a setup fee to get engaged. I mean, there's a tablet, there's photography, there's a bunch of things that we supply right. um, that have a cost. But you will actually send in a photographer. Mm-hmm. What is your goal in day one? Uh, with a restaurant. Yeah, so day one is to make sure that that restaurant's brand and food are as well represented in the, you know, that represents the brand and food that you are going to get. Um, And it's not just a list of items. And so the first step towards that, so from the very beginning, we've always had photography of five to 10 items uh, per restaurant. A photographer will come out, they'll schedule a shoot, they'll take pictures of all the food, Mm -hmm. that'll go into the app. We don't always get everything because sometimes there's 50 or 60 things. Um, uh, But our goal is to provide a richer and richer experience so you feel like you're interacting with the restaurant and not just a menu. Have you had consultants come in to do... uh photography work or, or like what steps have you taken to make sure your packaging is like as good as it can be packaging for photography or packaging photography for and packaging? like menu items and like what the customer sees yeah, so the menu starts out as just the menu that the restaurant has. Right. And we'll work with the restaurant or they'll say, hey, I, 
I think these things deliver well and these things I'm not so comfortable with um, uh, because they want to preserve quality or right. something like that. Like sometimes fried foods don't deliver as well. And so um, it, it's the restaurant's choice whether or not they put those items in or they work mm-hmm. with us in terms of like, hey, will this will this uh, you know deliver well and what are your opinions? And we sort of par- partner with them on that. Um, on the photography side of things, um, we want to keep the, the photography consistent with the eats, you know, with with the food that the restaurant has, but not inconsistent with the Eats app. Right. Because we want the ph- photography to appear, sort of feel similar across um, the menus. But obviously, we're representing the the restaurant's brand through that photography. So you know a lot. Like, you guys have a shit ton of information of what is working well, what menu items are, are being selected by people. Uh, if you know a dish is working very well in a market, how, how do you go about telling a restaurant, hey, you should put this on the menu or like you should take this one off because, you know, wh- what what does that look like? Yeah. So uh, we do a few things on that front. Um, one is just, uh, you, you know, we don't look at the experience on a market by market basis. We look at it on a customer by customer basis. So if you're a regular Eats user um, and I am, when we when we open up our apps at the same spot at the same time of day, the, the restaurants displayed and the items displayed will be different. Um, and that actually goes through to the menu as well. And this is in early stages, but even optimizing the menu f- by eater, uh, because if, if a restaurant offers hearty meals, mm-hmm. you know, salads, you know, different calorie counts, different cuisine types, and I'm always eating Italian all the time, then we're going to push that to the top of the menu. Mm-hmm. So, so we try to match the eater profile with what the restaurant has that would match the best. Um, uh, and so there's there's a fair amount of personalization there, right? Uh, and we're going to continue on that front. Does that mean actually hiding menu items? Uh, no, we don't ever hide menu items. Just changing. Yeah, just changing the priority. Like like okay. at, at the top of the menu, you'll see like recommended for you, or right. you know we, we change the, the language for testing. But but if you know I'm a cold, ruthless vegan, and I'm ordering from the deli next door, and they have a steak, you're still going to show me that steak. Yeah, I mean it's just going to be low in the list. Yeah, potentially. Okay. Potentially. I mean, cool. I mean, I mean, this is all governed by you know data science algorithms and things right. like this, and so um, we're just trying to score like how likely you are to be interested in things, and still early days, right? I right. mean, we're not perfect at this. Personalization takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of data, but this is where we're going. Like, like I want to be able to open up my app and with the same sort of transactional ease of oh, there's a car, hit the button. There should be like oh, here's the three things that I actually do feel like right, right. now. Right. Because because we have your um, time of day, we have your location, your order history, and some and some basic information about You'll you. You'll know if I've had a meeting with my boss. I'm stressed out. I want a milkshake. <laughs> uh, not that deep, but but uh, 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 but but we have enough contextual information right. to like be smart smarter about it. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back to this interview with Jason Drogi from Uber after this. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. In the business of tech, it's practically scripture that you have to be comfortable with big, bold, exciting risks. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to minimize the downsides by taking big risks. If you're hiring, you can massively reduce uncertainty with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. As applications come in, it analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates to save you time and make sure you never miss a great match. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. 
Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. The lowest risk price there is. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode and start putting that technology to work for you. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. I also want to tell you about Vox's show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that's tattoos. I have several, and I think you'll love it because it explores the question, why are so many people suddenly getting tattoos now? I have uh, one, two, three, five, I think five at this point, and I would like many more. It shows just how long humans have been marking their bodies to look different from people around them, and it explores tattoo traditions around the world and how they're melding together now. So go check it out on Netflix, search for Explained or for Vox or go to netflix.com slash explained. And now back to this interview with Jason Drogi on the Eater Upsell. Food trends, something like I don't know, sweet potato fries or acai bowls or things that are doing, I mean, I can only speak to New York, but like, how do you know if something like that is starting to spike? Mm-hmm. So um, we have a global business, so we have 280 cities, so that we have a lot of information about what's becoming popular. Um, we also have some tools that, that can show us where a cuisine type would potentially be popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, classic example is in the outskirts of Chicago, um, you know, in, in a suburb, I think it was Oak Brook, uh, uh, we noticed that there was no pokey shops. And so we went to a bunch of sushi restaurants and said, hey, we think pokey would be popular um, it, with just a tablet and, you know, and in your expertise, if you came up with a name for your restaurant and you built pokey bowls, we think you'd sell a lot more out of your sushi restaurant. Right. And they tried it and it worked. And they were like, okay, but we don't want to have poke in the name. And you're like, what do you know? Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's an important part of discovery, right? right. I mean, I mean, you, you know, if, if you were to call it something obscure, like it would just get discovered less. Right. Um, and so they'll call it something, you know, poke something. Got it. Um, or something poke. Uh, and... Uh, the demand was pretty high. I mean, I, I think it was like 60% more so than the So you got someone to do it. Yeah. So we have hundreds of these restaurants that are just actually, I mean, they're virtual. Right. They're, they're restaurant brands located in physical restaurants, um, and, and the brand only exists on Uber Eats. Right. And so what they get from it is they get to utilize their kitchen more. They get to sell more. They increase the size of their delivery business. Um, they don't compete with their in-store menu, and so it can be completely incremental to whatever they're doing in-store. Um, we see high-end restaurants Restaurants like you'll have a high-end Vietnamese restaurant who then will make a sort of more affordably priced mm. Vietnamese menu and right. then have, offer that for delivery only. So you have a lot of the same components, but maybe the protein is different, uh, you know, or maybe other things about portion size or prep are different. And so then they can just do more business while still having their higher-end concept. So is that an actual conversation? Are you like, hey, um, you know, you should open a poke place, or is this like an email that goes out to all of them? No, no, we'll contact them. I yeah. mean, I mean, we're still in early days with this idea and we're big believers in having a positive relationship with our restaurant partners because, right. because one, we want to. Two, the operational complexity of this stuff uh, requires a real collaboration on a person-to-person basis. Um, and... So no, we you know we interact with them and talk to them. But that's as far as you've gone with food suggestions. Like you, you would never. Will you guys actually? Will you call restaurants and suggest a single menu item? Like if you see that zillions of people are ordering burgers with sweet potato fries and they're only offering right. potato fry, regular potato fries. Right. 
we're, st- we're, we're in the early days of doing that. Yeah. Um, but that's absolutely part of the plan, which is how do we make sure that uh, restaurants have all of the data about what's popular, what could benefit their business, mm-hmm. um, obviously in an anonymized form, you know, at their fingertips. Like today, restaurants can see how is their food rated, how is the delivery rated. Um, they can see free form comments, which if, you know, in the real world, uh, you know, uh, you don't really know how happy your lunch rush was. Mm-hmm. And but in the delivery world, we ask for how is the delivery experience, how is the restaurant, how is each of the items, what's the freeform feedback? It's a lot right. of information to collect, but the restaurants really value it because it's it's quantifiable. Of course, yeah, and no one says it in person. Yeah, yeah, it's completely anonymized, and and restaurants have actually used that information to change their menus in store. So the way that the, the system works is the restaurant receives an order, right, and then. They tell you that they've started working on it, and then you have a time, a projected time that you think it's going to take them to finish it. That's uh, right. And then you want a car to get there and pick it up in as little time as possible. Like you, you don't want the car waiting there for the food, right? Well, you don't want either waiting, right? So that's the that's the magic, right? And so, but sorry. food is is notoriously difficult to time. I mean, only the most perfect restaurants have ever gotten close to getting this timing down. So how do, you, how do you deal with that window? Yeah, so there's two things that you can do here. One is you can work with the restaurant to help them understand how our system works and how we gauge their preparation times and what and the importance of the preparation time from a food quality and system efficiency standpoint. And, that, and, and they're, they're usually very willing to have that conversation because they want the best food at the customer's doorstep too. Right. Um, and they don't want drivers coming and having to wait for 15 minutes. That's not good for them either. So, so just working with the restaurant is, is a very simple step you can do. Um, and uh, they're awesome to work with on this because it improves the overall experience for everybody. Um, the second is the world is a complicated place. So we have a lot of data scientists working on you know, predictive models uh, for like how do we time these things and how do we shave you know, you know, you know, milli percentages or you know, tenths of a percent off of that time. So um, that's something that's a sustained effort and something we've done from the very, very beginning. But, but a lot of these things end up being like a giant math problem that you right. optimize over time. But I'm sure even, like, even if you give someone all the feedback in the world and you, and you help them, you teach them how your windows work and how they can be better, I'm sure there are places that will just always, always screw up, right? And just always be late. Are you dinging them in some way? Are you taking them off the system if they're screwing you over too many times? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of factors that that go into the ranking that you see uh, on the front uh, right. of the app. Um, some of it's around, uh, you know, how likely is it that the eater will want this food? Some of it's around delivery time. Some of it's around, you know, defects and, you know, you know how likely is the prep time to match what we think it's going to be or what we've worked on. Um, and the more reliable and the faster the delivery and the prep time is, that tends to influence the prominence of the restaurant. Okay. And so it's not, I mean... So it's helping them in the algorithm. Yeah, there's not hard lines there because we don't just, we don't believe in that yet because, I mean, this still this stuff is all very, um, you know, there's a reasonable degree of error, so we don't want to pen, over, you know, penalize someone who, who um, you know, is maybe having a bad week. Uh, but... 
typically what we do before any of that happens, you know, whenever we see some like behavior that pops up that's not good for the eaters or the marketplace or the restaurant, um, we'll, we'll just give the restaurant a call and say, hey, this is happening. Um, we also have a dashboard that shows, hey, here's how your delivery times, here's how your prep times match up to comparable cuisines. And, so, and yeah. so they can benchmark. Right. Um, and they can choose to follow that feedback or not um, or call us and have a conversation about it. What did those calls look like? Um, well, it's pretty simple. Like, like if they were to call us or we were to call them, it would just be, hey, here's the, here's the problem. The right. problem is like you're saying that I'm making my food um, faster or slower. Uh, like how do I improve? Or like what data are you seeing? Um, and then we just go through like, hey, here's the range of prep times we're seeing. Like, um, you know, on average, Mexican food, for example, is made between 8 and 11 minutes. I mean, I'm being overly specific here just, just for sake of the example. Uh, but that's how the conversation goes. And then it's like, okay, restaurant might make some changes. They might not. It's totally up to them. But if the guy, if, you know, if the people there are like, sure, Mexican food is 8 to 11 minutes, but my mole takes 25 minutes to stew on order, are, are, you, are you saying, well, that's unacceptable? Or like, okay, we're going to need to change your projected delivery times? No, yeah. I mean, you know, there's never a situation where it's like that's unacceptable. It's usually actually around like some some deviation of range. Like like if you're regularly making your food in 20 minutes and it's always 20 minutes, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, that's not the intent here to get them to speed up. It's just the intent is to get the delivery to be as fast as possible um, in the best quality to the eater. Right. And what that means is that the driver shows up right about when the food's getting done. And that's a coordination effort on both of our sides. Um, and so it's really a collaboration. It's a right. partnership. It's not, you know, it's not, it, it's not a hard rules-based engine. A problem child. Are you eventually going to kick them off? Are they eventually going to lose their spot? Usually that's only around, like, if there's, like, a health hazard sure. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, if, if a restaurant has a, a lower, if their health rating or something goes down, is that something you guys know about? Um, that's not something that we have a feedback loop on today. Um, that's something that we're going to be working on in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, I think it's, I think it's part of, you know, we believe in transparency. And so the more transparency there is on everything, what's in your food, health scores, et cetera, um, we think that helps consumers, eaters, uh, make a better choice. And that choice leads to more business for all. You're putting, you know, numbers on a lot of things. You obviously, uh, have cracked the code on logistics. Is there anything that you are seeing in kitchens that is just super frustrating? This is like, ha, you know, start frying five minutes later and everything will be right ready at the same time. Like, have you have you guys taken your your optimization into the kitchen at all? Uh, not yet. But does it? Are there things you personally notice? Are you like? Are you more interested in how kitchens are working now? Like, are you obsessed when you go to restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that. You know, one of the one of the conflicts restaurants have as their delivery business builds is, um, you know, how you service a table it, logistically is different than how you would service a delivery order, um, and you know, for some restaurants, right? It, it, especially if you have a dining experience, and so I, I think it's it's incumbent upon us to work with restaurants to like optimize the the sort of preparation flow or you know i mean i mean they can do it as well but we you know we like to do this in collaboration when possible uh, so so that their delivery business runs as smoothly as possible mm -hmm. but it's just a little bit different right you know if you have a stream of orders coming in 100 you know 100 orders come in in like 2 hours or you know i mean we have right. maybe an easier example 10 orders come in in 2 minutes like the order in which you make those 
it, you know, in some ways determines the efficiency in which they're made, right? Of course, if, yeah. if you could batch together like all the burgers and they can make three burgers and then three fries, that's probably easier than a burger and fries and then a salad and then a burger and fries. That's probably slower to make together. And so I think over time, what you're going to see is um, just data and you know, you know, um, more intelligence applied to that production process, but it's early days for everybody on that. And, and it's an incredibly complicated problem and we don't claim to be the experts there. Um, the experts are making the food today. Um, we, we merely provide technology and data to help it. Is that why you think you, you guys work so well with McDonald's because they are obsessed with their own timings? Yeah, so uh, I think that's a great partnership on many fronts. Um, one of them is the operational uh, excellence and efficiency that we're both striving for. And uh, they're an incredible operator, and we've learned a lot from them about their operations. Um, and they've actually changed uh, how, you know, they're a little bit different. They can actually make food faster than we can get a driver there. Hmm. So, I mean, they can make food in a minute or two, uh, maybe even faster. I don't want to speak for them, but super fast. You know, if it takes us three or four minutes to get a driver there, that's different than your typical restaurant where the driver might go to the restaurant, um, you know, while the food is being made. A lot of times the food at McDonald's would be made like as the driver is arriving, right? Because it's so fast and that really ensures that high quality food. Um, the pickup is really seamless. The driver can just be on his way or her way. Right. And um, uh, it's the best experience for the consumer too. So I think, I think the big question, and like I don't know the answer to this, but maybe how old were you when you were obsessed with that burger place? It's probably like eight or nine. Yeah. Well, I think the big question is like, is all this stuff like actually good for restaurants? I mean, it seems to me that it's an extra source of revenue. They're selling more than they would, you know, young Jason is getting his his burger. But what what is that conversation like these days? Well, I mean, I think that we're all here to service the consumer, right, and the eater. And so, um, you know, I think eaters today want convenience, they want value, they want flexibility, and they want choice. <laughs> and delivery offers all of those things. Uh, and, you know, restaurants choose to participate in delivery. Uh, and so uh, if, if they don't believe it's valuable for, you know, a, you know, as a channel to connect to their consumers or maybe new consumers um, or reach new people with their brand, uh, then, that's, then that's okay. Um, we're here to provide a conduit between the two. Right, um, right. You know, not to tell them how to run their business. Mm -hmm. So what's the, the horror story, though? It, it, you know, you... They start delivering with a delivery service. Uh, they realize this is a huge new source of revenue. They build their business. They tailor their business more towards delivery. And then the delivery fees start to go up, and they start to eat a larger percentage of, of their sales. Is this, is this something you're worried about? Yeah, we I mean, we, don't, we haven't changed fees on restaurants. Yeah. Uh, so the deal that they get up front is the deal that they can operate under, you know, you know, as they grow, you know, to the extent that, that, uh, the delivery business is getting to a point where, you know, it's so big that they're concerned about the economics. That's something that we're more than happy to work with them on and talk to them about. I don't think that, you know, we're in a world where we, we both have costs. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the consumers really want delivery. So there might be changes to the business model over time in terms of, you know, do you really need real estate that's as expensive as what you're in today? Um, there's models out there where restaurants have delivery-only kitchens and cheaper real estate. Uh, and so I think, that, I think that as demand increases, there'll be a lot of opportunities for restaurants to adopt different models. 
Um, but today we have 120,000 restaurants active every single week, and um, most of them are pretty happy. Some people would say that McDonald's is not necessarily good for the world in terms of health or whatever. Are you are you conscious of, like, are you looking at health trends? Are you trying? Are you, do you are you editorializing at all? I think you have to give consumers what they want. Right, and you have to give them access and choice, um, and that's why I'm a big believer in continuing to push on transparency, which is um, it's not our job to editorialize food, mm-hmm. right? It's our job to uh, deliver what you choose to eat uh, and connect you with it as seamlessly as possible, and over time, um, hopefully, provide more transparency into that food. I think that's what's important. Uh, I mean, I, like, I don't think of myself as an unhealthy guy, and I eat, and I eat McDonald's twice a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- I'm at like once. Yeah. So, like, why would I? You know, why should Uber take that role? I don't think that we should. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back to this interview with Jason Drogi from Uber after this. Today's show is brought to you by NetSuite. Every company battles challenges as it grows, updating manual processes, replacing inefficient systems, getting a handle on cash flow. As you scale, you need software that can handle that growth. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you can save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk and even your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their businesses, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Don't miss out on unleashing your business's full potential with this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. You learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers of Growth, when you go to netsuite.com slash decode. Download their free Crushing the Five Barriers of Growth guide today at netsuite.com slash decode. That's netsuite.com slash decode. Hey, Recode Decode listeners. This is Amanda Clute, Eater's Editor-in-Chief, and I want to tell you about a new TV show that we just launched with PBS and Chef Marcus Samuelson. Every Tuesday, Marcus explores the food and culture of a different immigrant community, like the Arab-American community in Dearborn, Michigan, the Vietnamese community in New Orleans, and on and on. I really love the show because I'm learning about new cultures and foods and traditions that I didn't know about in the United States, and I hope you can add these destinations to your travel bucket list. Check out the show every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. on eater.com slash required or on PBS. And now back to this interview with Jason Drogi on the Eater Upsell. So let's talk about, you know, future of eats. There are some companies, some UK companies that are they're making their own food. Is there any 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 things out there that you're like, oh we, yeah, we could do that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, I think there's a lot of models out there. There's a lot of people trying a lot of things. Um, we tend to be, uh, you know, we tend to play our own game in terms of what we think makes sense for our business and for the restaurants that, you know, if we can offer value to our restaurants uh, that we work with, we'll do it and we'll invest in that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm not a restaurateur. I believe that the world is full of awesome, creative people right. who will come up with better food, better ingredients, really innovative things. Um, and I'm not a big believer in centralizing that. I think the decentralization and sort of enabling all of the creative food makers out there to connect to the world is a very powerful thing. And it's going to be awesome to see what happens when you when you take away the boundaries that restaurateurs have today. And 
Um, we'll see how that plays out. So what are some ways that you are helping restaurants do what they do like on a larger scale? Yeah, so well, one is just delivery itself, yeah. right? I mean, uh, you've got restaurants that don't have prime real estate who have a, a big percentage of their business in delivery. You know, maybe they're on an alleyway. Maybe they make the best sandwich in town, but they're hidden in a deli. Um, and uh, uh, that sort of meritocracy is something that we've seen come out. Um, uh, and it's something that I'm excited to see more of. Mm -hmm. uh, like, the best food should win. Right. Um, if you make the best food and, you know, we can take away some of the pieces of difficulty when it comes to scaling, then great. And if we can continue to offer that, then even better. Um, and, you know, there's models, as you mentioned, people are talking about real estate, people are talking about leasing equipment and timesharing equipment. And there's all these different models that are out there. I, th I still think it's early days to, to make a call on, like, where all that goes. But is it is not worth trying? I mean, we try things all the time that, right. that we don't talk about. <laughs> Like like your like your burrito place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so last year you guys bought Ando from Dave Chang, which was his delivery only uh, only restaurant. Um, what did you see in in that um, in that property or that uh, that name? Yeah. So today we have um, our interface with the restaurant as a tablet. And we do point-of-sale integrations as well. Yeah. Um, we just bought a company called Order Talk to do POS integrations. Um, and so we're very aware that in order to make this a seamless uh, operational experience, that we need to connect with the internal systems that you have in an existing kitchen. Um, and we're big believers in that macro trend. Uh, it's unclear, like I said, it's unclear how it's going to play out. Ando had a ton of experience in terms of what does a dedicated kitchen look like? What are all of the challenges? Um, they had employees and engineers who, you know, saw that stuff firsthand. And that experience was valuable for us in that deal. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the primary benefit is, uh, you know, it's a fast moving space. We want to bring in people that have as much knowledge about food prep and its connection to technology as possible to create that empathy. Mm -hmm. And were the, like, all their gear was still there, right? Like the fryers and their, all that kind of stuff? The yeah, we didn't take the physical pans. assets. That wasn't part of our deal. Okay. That went somewhere else. Um, so there's no, and, and what about this, this model of, of, I know you mentioned it, but renting real estate to allow the restaurants to have spaces closer to downtown, like uh, the commissary kitchen style thing. Right. Is that something you think there's a future in? Yeah, like I said, a bunch of people are testing it. Yeah. I mean, here in New York, you've got uh, restaurants that operate that way anyway on delivery networks. Right. Um, without any assistance from anybody else. And so you're seeing this even without us in the market in your busiest um, you know, in your busiest cities. I mean, we see it on Eats too. Like, absent our participation, there are delivery-only kitchens that have popped up on Eats right. um, that, uh, you know, people are making a living on. Like in Austin, there was a, there were some college kids who created, I think it was a, a barbecue restaurant, a <laughs> dessert place, and possibly sushi. All in one place. All in one commissary kitchen, put three restaurants on Eats, and they would make money you know, I believe like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right. Sunday, and the real estate was very cheap. It was very flexible. They could turn off, like on and off the apps. And so we're seeing people start to experiment with these models. Is it not an opportunity to like give people that are doing really well more space and more opportunity? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I like again, I, I, I don't, I don't totally know how this is all going to play out. Yeah. Um, I think that if you look at the challenges of uh, a restaurant, um, very high capital expenditure pretty high operational expenditure, 
high marketing. I mean, restaurateurs have to do something that like very few business owners have to do, which is they have to be good at marketing, creating food, operations, sourcing, negotiating, logistics, real estate, super complicated business. And um, how much more creation would we have in that space if you could, you know, give some reprieve on some of those operational elements? Right. Um, I just don't, I can't say what those elements are going to be. Uh, it's funny, Dave Chang in an interview, he just thinks that Uber and all the companies are just going to make all the food in the end anyway. Yeah, I mean, I that, that that's not, I mean... I, if you guys do an Uber burrito, can I can I be the first one? <laughs> the last thing I want to do is is have a have a world where um, we are sh- consolidating taste. Right. I, I think the world that I would want to live in is a world where I get to experiment. I want a longer tail of food. Mm-hmm. I want a longer tail of perspectives and fusions of food. I don't know that that happens from centralization. So you want customers' options to be as as different, as unique as possible. Yeah, I mean... You're not looking for, like, the thing that is the most efficient. I I just don't... I mean, we often ask ourselves, like, what does the future look like and what world do we want to live in? Helicopter delivery food. (laughs) And I want to live in a world where, you know, the street food that I had in Mexico City that was, like, amazing and the recipe was handed down from generation to generation, I want to live in a world where that is more accessible to me. I don't necessarily want to live in a world where... Like all pizzas taste the same. That sounds like a terrible world to live in. How is that possible? How is that? How can we get that Mexican food to you right now? That's the challenge. Yeah, and that's what's exciting over the next like five to ten years of how you know changing how people want to eat. Teleportation. Yeah, who knows, right? I mean, would you ever do a thing where you have some like super famous chef in a city doing like ten meals, and they're like whoever gets them first, like a three <laughs> Michelin star delivery or something? I mean, I think we, we've done stunts like, like the that. DJ oh. Khaled. Lift ride or whatever that was. <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think there's lots of fun things that our ops teams and and uh, you know marketing teams do around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, with so many cities, we might have already done that. <laughs> <laughs> what are some mind blowing experiences, non delivery food experiences that you've had? Uh, I've had a lot. Uh, we just went to. I mean, I'm from San Francisco, yeah. so we went to Lazy Bear, like uh, you know, which, which is more of a high end experience. Right. Um, is your head going crazy? Like, how can we deliver parts of this? <laughs> yeah, I just look at that experience and I'm like, we have a long way to go to like replicate this experience in delivery. Um, <laughs> I mean, the restaurant is part of the experience, right? right? Of course. Like, like the communal aspects. I mean, I think that those experiential um, restaurants will continue to get more experiential uh, uh, and. You know, you know, our goal is to just bring you the best food and you get to choose your experience at home, you know, or at the office or at the park or wherever. Right. Or the chef could come and, like, set up the whole dining room and everything. Yeah, that'd be amazing, too. I'm not sure that we're going to pack a chef and a whole team of people in a car and, and, and deliver them to you. But Do you think that's what it's we'll like, though, it. that, like, experiences are getting more experiential and delivery and, and home experiences are just, like, that middle ground is just evaporating? Yeah, I, I, hard for me to say. I, I I just know from my own personal experience that like when you go out, you want to. Yeah, when I want to go out, like like it becomes an event, um, and you know I have two kids, so staying home is is a pretty cool experience. You know, you eat in the backyard, you can kind of choose your own adventure, um, but. Uh, certainly experiential dining is something that we believe will become more and more popular over time. Have you given any shitty feedback to restaurants on Uber Eats? Have I? Yeah. No. No, no cold, soggy fries? No, I mean, I'll, we leave it to our eaters to provide the feedback. No, I mean, you personally, like when you Uber Eats a thing. Uh, I don't think so. No. I actually haven't had that many bad experiences lately, so. <laughs> well, cool. Jason Drogi, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Great. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. 
Thanks so much, Recode listeners, for listening to this episode of the Eater Upsell. If you want to find more of the show, you can find it on any podcast platform or upsell.com slash eater. Every week on the show, we either interview a food person or talk about current events in the food world or even do a deep dive into a single subject. I make the show every week with my co-host, Amanda Clute, who is our editor-in-chief. So if you like food and you like podcasts, come check us out. Hey, everybody. It's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, listen to podcasts. Check it out.